Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 3 tonight. We are going to cover a lot of material. Uh, last week, we covered maybe 12 verses, I think, uh, of James chapter 2. I think we went from 14 to 26, something like that. Yes, uh, 13 verses then. This week, we are going to cover two whole chapters. Uh, and it's going to be a task. So there's going to be a lot of material. Uh, but I will say, if you can stick with me, I promise that this will be very helpful to you. It's, it's a study that's already been helpful for me. Uh, and another reason that that is the case um, is because from this morning's message, there are actually so many parallels uh, that it's, it's almost a little bit eerie. Uh, and I understand that it's, it's not eerie. That's the spirit of God at work. I think you're going to see a lot of parallels in this message to what we heard this morning. Uh, and I don't do that intentionally. I, I know for sure, and I can give you my word that I didn't do that intentionally, uh, because Pastor and I hardly talked at all this week. Uh, so I promise we weren't like conspiring uh, to preach similar messages, but it's just God is trying to work on someone or some group of people or a few of us uh, in a particular way, and, and that's awesome. Uh, I'm thankful for that, and I'm glad I can be a part of his work here. This week we are going to look simply at how to become wise. Uh, I think it's going to be a really helpful study, uh, but like the last or like last week, we'll start with just a little bit of review uh, as we get uh, so that we can kind of hit the ground running. We met James our first week, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, he wrote a very authoritative letter to Christians who had been spread abroad because of persecution. We looked the first week again, or excuse me, and again last week, at how everything that James is saying must be viewed in the context of one uh, instruction to one who has already accepted Christ as their Savior. Rather than focusing on the deep things of the faith, James teaches us how to live lives that are righteous in practice. His simple instruction shows us that we don't need to have a high IQ to be a good Christian. We don't need to understand everything in life and every deep doctrine in order to be a good Christian. Now, I will say that we certainly should desire to learn those, those deeper doctrines as we grow in our faith. Um, but we have everything that we need, James 1 tells us, if we just look intently into the mirror of God's word and obey it. We learned the first week how to deal with trials and temptations. James instructed us to have a mindset of joy as we go throughout difficult and frustrating moments or seasons because we're being patient. We wait on God because we know who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. His timing and his plan are better than ours, and our dependence on him and our devotion to him creates within us a mature faith. Then we saw that as we endure trials, our own lusts create temptations. Understanding our own weakness seems like a small thing, and it's almost disconnected, but it really can go a long way in helping us to defeat those temptations. As we daily recognize our own weaknesses and fall, the only natural action for us to take is to accept the responsibility. We saw in James 1 that it's no one's fault but our own uh, when we do fall in temptation. It's not God's fault. It's not the devil's fault. It's not any other person around you that you think made you do something. It's our own fault when we sin. But we know that the man who understands his weakness and accepts responsibility wants to have less and less weakness. Uh, and therefore, hopefully, we'll have to accept less and less responsibility, and we are hopefully guided out of the habit of sinfulness. James tells us we are blessed and we will receive great honor if we can endure the trials and temptations. And as a result of enduring those trials and temptations, we will naturally trust God more because our faith is made sight in a sense. We don't literally see Jesus Christ, but we experience that what God says about himself is true. Right. We experience that, uh, that what he says about the world is true. We experience that what he says about each of us is true. Therefore, our trust is strengthened through the acceptance of his word uh, and the things that it has taught us. What that does is deepen, uh, or excuse me, we further and deepen our trust then as we follow in obedience. Uh, I, again, this is just review, but I was thinking this week uh, on an illustration to try to help us with this. Uh, and I thought of my younger brother, actually. Uh, he comes and visits me occasionally, and I like to beat him at golf. But I really do enjoy spending time with him. Uh, and I, we have a special relationship that's not very common, I don't think, 
uh, in today's world. Uh, I'm six years older than he is, and there have been many occasions where I will come to him, I'll see him doing something, and I'll say, hey, you should try this this way instead of this way, instead of the way you're doing it. And just like I would, uh, hard-headed, uh, of course, I'll keep doing it my way for a bit until the person walks away, and I'll be like, all right, let me give this a quick try, you know, and so I'll try it the other way. He does the same thing, um, and uh, I come back, and he goes, oh, wow, you're right, that was a good way to do that. Uh, and I didn't intend for, you know, me trying to help my brother with different things to deepen our relationship, but it has, because he sees that I'm looking out for his best interest. He knows that I'm not just like, hey, you should stick to the screwdriver in the electrical socket and see what happens, right? You know, it's, it's things hopefully that will help him. Um, but our relationship has been enhanced as he's listened to what I've said and obeyed it because he understands I have his best interest at heart. Similarly, God has our best interest at heart. And when we understand and obey his word, our relationship with him is so deepened. Then last week we took a much deeper look uh, at a chapter instead of uh, trying to cover a lot of uh, stuff. And the end of chapter 2 showed us a very clear distinction between dead faith and living faith. We looked first at three characteristics of a dead faith. The first characteristic was a false profession. Our faith is illegitimate, dead, and pointless if it produces only a date in the front of our Bibles, a pithy quote in our Instagram bio, or a title that we can claim because we grew up in a particular family or area. Our family, or excuse me, our faith is not based on the words that we say. Praise the Lord. Uh, it's wonderful that we can come to Jesus Christ in a sense in a number of ways. Now we understand the way is repentance and faith, but there's not a set word structure or certain things you have to say. What matters truly is what your heart is saying uh, to the Lord. And then uh, we'll keep going and uh, we'll I'll mention the end. The second characteristic that we noted was a fraudulent pity. Fraudulent pity isn't really pity at all. It's a cheap and potentially harmful attempt at a beautiful self-sacrificing love that God showed to mankind. The last characteristic of a dead faith was a flippant persuasion. James shares the example of one who was content to live life the way he wanted without works. But I gave us an illustration of explosives in a field that seems to be a, a bit grabbing to us, which is good. Uh, but the thing we understood from that is that the only way to prove something intangible is to look at the results of that thing. We understand that results are works in the case that we were looking at. We were told in Ephesians 2.10 that we are created in Christ Jesus to good works. Then we saw two examples of a living faith in Abraham and Rahab. James showed us that Abraham was justified by his obedience in being willing to sacrifice Isaac. We had what seemed like a contradiction, uh, but when we cleared up this example, we just simply looked at the meaning of the word justified. Uh, we looked at what Paul meant in Romans 3 and 4, and then we compared it to James 2. We also noted James's context of tests of true faith and how he was writing to the brethren. So we understood that justified meant proved, vindicated, or corroborated. <clears throat> Once we got all of that straightened out, the examples are very simple. We saw the example of Rahab in Joshua 2, verse 11 and 21. She made a genuine profession of who God was to the spies. You say, how do you know her profession was genuine? Because then she proved it with her works. She protected God's chosen people. She told her family what was coming, and then she extended the scarlet cord out of her window. She meant what she said to God, and it showed in the way that she acted. This week, like I've said already, we'll learn how to be wise, and we'll look at James chapters 3 and 4. Uh, before we begin, anyone in here would say, hey, I'd really like to be a fool instead of wise? Good. Okay, good. Then this is of mutual interest to all of us, then. Uh, I think understanding what true wisdom is, where we can find it, what will help us find it, uh, will be very helpful. Let's begin by reading verses 13 through 18 of James chapter 3. We'll pray and then we will get into our study for this evening. James chapter 3 verses 13 through 18. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, 
sensual, devilish. For when, where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Let's pray, and then we will get into our study. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time that we can again meet together in your house. I uh, pray that your word would fill each one of our lives. Uh, thank you for this study that uh, you've already impressed on my heart and has been working in my own life uh, over certain things that we'll talk about. Uh, I pray that you would help each one of us to truly desire to find true wisdom. Uh, and then I pray that you would help us to accomplish that too. We know that your word wants us to find true wisdom. Uh, and I pray that you would help us to accomplish that goal by your grace. I pray that you would help me not to be a distraction tonight. I pray that there would be no other distractions that would be able to just take some time and focus uh, and hear what your word has for us this evening. We pray all this in your name. Amen. In our world today, true wisdom is sought after like never before, but it's rarely found, and even more rarely is it displayed. A quick search for a book or podcast on any type of wisdom is abundant. In just the top 100 results that I quickly scanned through, there is wisdom we need regarding our finances. There's wisdom we need for both our jobs and dynamics in the workplace. There's wisdom we need for relationships, both platonic and romantic. There's wisdom from transitioning from one stage of life to another. There's wisdom we need on how to have a positive outlook on life and how to deal with loss. Apparently, there's wisdom that we need on how to make the world a greener place. There's even wisdom on how to interact with our pets more meaningfully. Uh, now, just a quick side note. If you're having a meaningful interaction with your pet on a regular basis, uh, I would encourage you to talk to Pastor right after we're done tonight. And, if I may, I would love to sit in that meeting and see if I can be a help. We understand that true wisdom for life is sought after, again, this is kind of silly, but it's true. True wisdom for life is sought after like $2 gas, and like the $2 gas, it's hard to find. Why does it seem so difficult to find true wisdom? Why is wisdom so sought after? Proverbs gives us the answer to both of these questions. Our world actually gets it right that wisdom should be sought after. Listen to these three simple passages that come from Proverbs, and not even just all from Proverbs, but from the same exact chapter. Proverbs 8, verses 11, verse 11 says, For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Further down in the passage, verses 15 and 16, By me kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. Me is wisdom personified, wisdom is who is speaking there. Same thing again in this later passage in verses 18 through 21 of chapter 8. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. That's kind of hard to say no to. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance, and I will fill their treasures. Where our world gets it wrong, though, is where true wisdom can be found. We look in all the wrong places. How do I know that? Because Proverbs tells us in different ways on several occasions that wisdom is actually reaching out to us. Listen to these examples. Proverbs 1.21, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates. In the city, she uttereth her words. Proverbs 1.24, Wisdom called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. And then this last one in Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 4. Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of high places, by the way in the places of the paths, or somewhere that's very, very public. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. So if wisdom is calling to us, and we understand that wisdom is necessary, that we really need it, then why can't we find it? True wisdom is so difficult to find because we get in our own way. 
The first main point that we're going to look at tonight are the hindrances that keep us from profitably seeking and finding true wisdom. And James tells us what those hindrances are. He surrounds the section that we just read on wisdom from above with the hindrances that keep us foolish and simple. Let's begin by looking at the first hindrance to finding true wisdom that James lists, our tongue. James begins by talking about the destructive nature of our tongue. Let's read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 and we'll make some observations. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offends not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and birds, and of, serpent, uh, excuse me, of serpents, and of things in the sea, is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. There are a few things that I want us to note before we look at the tongue's destructive power. First, we can observe that James cares greatly about our speech. He mentions it in every single chapter of this letter. He mentions it in chapter 1, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 12, much of chapter 3, we just read some of it, chapter 4, verse 11, and chapter 5, verse 12. The second thing I want us to keep in mind is that we've looked at James's context the last few weeks of tests that prove our faith. And this section on the tongue continues that. A very clear test of genuine living faith is how we use our words. One commentator says it this way. Nowhere is the relationship between faith and works more evident than in a person's speech. What you are will inevitably be disclosed by what you say. Third, it's really important to realize that none of these illustrations that James uses to describe the tongue are good. They are all warnings as to what damage our tongues can do. The last thing I want us to have in mind as we go throughout this section is how the rabbis of old used to refer to our tongues. They spoke of our tongues as arrows because they can wound and kill, but from a distance. When we talk about the tongue, we must understand that this is a crucial part of our flesh that we must learn to control. So let's look and see how powerful the tongue is. Uh, if we look at verse 2, uh, it says, if any man offend, excuse me, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to control his whole body. This word likely means complete or mature, as, as we have seen earlier regarding our faith when we go through trials. It could also mean without sin. And I actually want us to look at it from that light tonight. Matthew 12, 34 tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And we know from Jeremiah 17, 9, that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. If our mouths speak what is in our hearts, and our hearts are wicked, then it's perfectly logical that the word perfect in James 3 could mean without sin, because every man, woman, and child has sinned with his tongue at some point. If we think of it that way, we could deduce that the power that is needed to control our tongues is the same power that it takes to make us perfect. That's kind of crazy to think about. If we can control our tongues absolutely perfectly, we could literally be perfect. Uh, that is a lot of power. Let's think just for a minute about how often we sin with our tongues. I want us to note how powerful the tongue really is. The teens are familiar with this because we just did a, a whole series on, the, on speech a few months ago. Common ways that we sin with our tongues include taking God's name in vain, using profanity, lying, cutting people down, and complaining. So before going on, I want us to just take a second and examine our own lives with these categories in mind. We actually use the name of God in vain far more often than we think we do. Uh, maybe you would say, Zach, I don't run around just throwing God's name around like it's nothing. Uh, and I certainly don't say, oh my, and then put the name of God in that place. Well, let's look quickly to see how well we really do with not taking our Lord's name in vain. 
Exodus 20, verse 7 says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We're very familiar with that part. But the second half of that verse uh, has even more of a, a push that we need to understand. It says, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. One way that we commonly take the Lord's name in vain is through hypocrisy. We make a profession of faith similarly to what James has been talking about, and then we don't live up to that profession. We've taken the name of the Lord in vain if we are using it for our own purposes. We take the name of the Lord in vain in covenant breaking. If we make promises to God and then we don't keep our end, that is a serious, serious thing. Some, sometimes people will ask me, uh, do you think that I could uh, make a covenant with God and ask for this if I do this? And I will say very succinctly, we are not in a place to bargain with God. Uh, it, is, it is a very fearful thing to do uh, to make that covenant because we are so finite and flawed. It's likely that that covenant will not end being held up on our end. And that's taking God's name in vain. We can take God's name in vain through oath making, which would just be mentioning God's name or some of his attributes to form an oath. People a lot of times today will say, I swear to, and then they'll put the name of God. That is completely wrong. We, Matthew tells us that our yea should be yea and our nay should be nay. We don't need to swear on anything. Another way that we can use his name in vain is by using his name or any forms of his name lightly. Or if we use his name as an exclamation. People use, this one is way more common than we think, but people use God's name or a form of it sometimes like punctuation when they pray. Yeah. I'm sure you've probably heard this where somebody just starts uh, praying and like every other word is the word Lord. And like this, it doesn't have any meaning. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean if that's you, but it, it's just when we start throwing the name of the Lord around lightly, we are completely missing the point. I also would be remiss if I didn't mention the way that a lot of Christians unknowingly take God's name in vain, which is through euphemistic use. A euphemism is a word or phrase substituted for one that is more harsh or not acceptable. I'm going to step on toes here. If you do a simple Google search of the word God, you can click or tap almost any result, and the history and etymology is euphemism for God. I'm not trying to be harsh or unkind, but some people throw around the substitution of God's name several times a day, and it doesn't even phase us. We can say that we don't mean it that way, but I'll tell you right now, for some things it doesn't matter how you mean it. The world knows what it means, and God knows what it means. Uh, if we want to think of a good example uh, of using God's name in a right way, we frequently think back to the Israelites and the scribes of old. Uh, who, when they wrote the name of God, would not even include what we would just describe as the vowels of it because it was so sacred to them. They didn't want to do anything to, to diminish or taint the name of God. Uh, it was something that was reverentially spoken. Uh, and we have gotten so far away from that today. So far away from that. And we need to be very careful. Our tongues are very powerful. Another way the tongue's power is shown is through the lies we tell. We lie all the time. Uh, this is, I think lying is one of the easiest things to look at if you want to say, yeah, I'm pretty, it's pretty clear I'm not perfect. Uh, or if you're trying to help someone else see that they're not perfect. Um, we lie all the time. If, if you've ever had anyone ask you, how are you, and you say, I'm good, thanks, and you're not really good, that's a lie. <laughs> and that seems really silly, but it is. I mean, uh, our culture loves genuineness and authenticity and things like that today, and I get that. And that's a good push. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are times maybe when you just say, well, you know, the Lord's taking care of me. That would be a great way to answer it. The Lord is taking care of you. Uh, another, uh, a few other common lies would be things like this. This is so common, too. Uh, must have gone to my spam folder. Or I just saw this. Sorry for the delay. That one's really common. I've, I've, I've used that before. Shamefully. Uh, or else maybe we just tell people, oh, that's interesting, when it's really not interesting at all. Uh, we lie all the time, and it, it is silly, and uh, I understand that. But we also have to understand, even those silly lies are sin. We also cut people down all the time. Some people are really good at this. We know just how to ask that sarcastic question to make everyone laugh at the fool. You know how to give a compliment. So everyone knows that it's not a real compliment except for the person that it's being directed at. Sometimes we finally recognize that it's wrong, 
but we've gotten so good at being sarcastic that we finally realize the power that it takes to actually stop, and it takes a lot of power to stop. Then sometimes we sin with our tongues and we just say words that are cruel, something that's crass, or maybe just unbecoming. We think just because we're not saying the actual bad word that it's somehow better. If you look at Matthew 12, 36, he gets rid of all of the questions. He says, I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. That makes me want to shut up a little bit more because that would be a little bit less uh, reckoning, right? Or, or explaining myself to God. I, I won't be explaining myself. I will just take what he gives me. Uh, but that is super important to understand. Every single word that we say is one that we will give an account for. So the only man who ever had the kind of power that was necessary to control his tongue was Christ. And again, he actually was perfect. He never sinned with his tongue. James then moves on and illustrates the tongue's power in verses 3 and 4. These illustrations we're familiar with. The first illustration is that of a bit in the mouth of a horse. And the second is of a rudder of a ship. Uh, We've been, Sarah and I have been to Keeneland several times and we really enjoy going out there. And I will tell you, when those horses rumble by, uh, I am thankful that there is a bit in their mouth because some of them are kind of nasty and I don't really want to be near that. Um, but this is a great illustration. We understand these two things are very powerful, but they're, they're controlled. They have uh, just a little bit of power, uh, or excuse me, they, they have a lot of power that is controlled by a small device. He says in this next verse, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. We then see how wild the tongue can be. Uh, one author writing for the Science Times uh, writes this on why forest fires are so uncontrollable. Because James makes this uh, comparison to that our tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. He writes in verse 5, it dwells in fold how great a little matter, excuse me, how great a matter a little fire kindles. This author writes, first they incredibly hard to contain. When forest fires start, they are often not noticed for a few hours to a few days. By that time, the forest fires have grown to a state where they are no longer controlled. Their sheer size makes them very hard to control, even with the attacks from the ground, the air, and specialized vehicles. Therefore, by the time firefighting professionals contain them, they have already scorched thousands of acres. Second, the climate in which the forest fires start is incredibly dry. This means that there's plenty of fuel for the fires. Humidity is an enemy of forest fires, and without the aid of weather, Humans end up combating these fires on their own. This makes them even harder to control. If we make the application of forest fires to our tongues, we can note a few things. First, it's really hard to contain the scope of our speech because we don't always realize how many people are going to be affected by what we say. Second, the climate of our world has been and is one in which negative things are the things that get attention. It is really dry, if you want to put it that way, and there is a lot of scorching that goes on. James continues in verse 6 that my tongue is a world of iniquity and set on the fire of hell. That is pretty graphic language to describe this. But the usage of this word uh, hell is very similar to the usage of the word naked last week. It was a word that would have been painfully clear to James's audience. The, this phrase, fire of hell, is not the word Hades that speaks to eternal punishment, but rather this is the word Gehenna, and it refers to a valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a deep forest near Jerusalem that was filled with garbage, as well as bodies of dead animals and executed criminals, and there was continual fire. The powerful odor permeated everything nearby with the terrible smell of worthless, rotting material. Similarly, our tongues can permeate everything around us with rotten and putrid material, or we can use them for good. James then transitions to the duplicitous tongue in verse 9 through 12. This is going to be very similar to the double-minded man that we looked at. He says, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeded blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. I don't want us to spend too much time on this point because we've understood this idea of double-mindedness already. Uh, but we see now that even our tongues have their own mind, if we want to put it that way, right? We can tend to be double-minded that way. James writes that our tongues bless God, even the Father, and then we curse men. 
when I went where, excuse me, when we went through James 1, a major temptation for Christians is to have that mindset. We'll bless God, we'll curse men, right? Uh, we want to do what we want to do on our own time, but then we also want to be who people expect us to be at the other time. It's such a double life, and I'm going to be honest, it is super stressful, and I know that because I've lived it. Uh, James tells us that men are made after the similitude of God. So we have a major problem with blessing God and cursing man. Man is made in God's own unique and precious image. So truthfully, we can't bless God and curse men because we're either cursing God and cursing men or blessing God and blessing men. Also, that phrase ought not so to be is easy to gloss over, but it has a forceful meaning. The Greek words that translate to our English words ought not is a strong negative. It's not the same words, but it's a similar idea to what Paul says in Ephesians 5 when he says, Let fornication and uncleanness not once be named among you. The way we could understand it is it should be so far from us to bless God and curse men that people jump to your defense if you were ever to be accused. He then writes about the fountain uh, that has sweet water and bitter. Uh, and verses 10 through 12 are simply telling us the duplicitous nature of our tongues, is, or excuse me, what really shows that nature is not what's coming out of our mouths, but rather the source of what's coming out. We've gotten vegetables from several of your gardens this year, and uh, it's been a blessing, truthfully. Uh, we really enjoy getting those. Uh, but I would expect that none of you would plant a corn seed and hope for a zucchini to grow. Uh, if you do, again, might be something you want to talk about with Pastor. Uh, we plant our corn seed knowing that corn will come from it, or a corn whatever. I'm not a gardener, so I'm glad, I'm glad you all are. But we, we think this way for our Christian lives as well. We allow something, or maybe even decidedly plant something in our hearts, and then we hope for something else. That doesn't add up. We must either love and expect righteous conversation and put in righteous wisdom and love, or we need to expect vulgar results from the vulgarity that we choose. So the main question is this, how does our tongue keep us from wisdom? Our tongues keep us from finding true wisdom because it's hard to learn true wisdom when your tongue is working. The old adage, you have two ears and one mouth to listen twice as much as you speak applies perfectly here. Second, our tongues keep us from finding true wisdom because our tongues are destructive. They tend naturally to evil, deadly poison and decaying garbage. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. A man that has wisdom is not going to give you wisdom if all you're doing is being scornful and destructive. Besides that, we can assume that someone with a tongue full of purposely evil, or excuse me, purposeful evil, is not going to be searching the scriptures for true wisdom. Wow. Third, our tongues keep us from finding true wisdom because they're duplicitous. We look back to James 1.7, we see the verse that says, For let not the double-minded or duplicitous man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. According to that verse, we can understand God's not going to help us find true wisdom if we can't decide what we want to be. He says, Let not that man think anything of the Lord. God is the most loving Father and wants to give us good gifts. He wants to give us the wisdom. But we see in James 1 that when we act like the world and try to love God, we should receive nothing of the Lord. In these ways, our tongues are a major hindrance to discovering true wisdom. Now let's jump to chapter 4. Now I want us to read verses 1 through 3 together. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Uh, it's very clear what James is getting at here. This passage is all about me, thus showing our second hindrance to true wisdom, which is pride. Chapter 4 of James is all about pride. We see three forms of it, and I'm going to move quickly through these so that we can get to our uh, ending goal, which is actually trying to find true wisdom. But the first type of pride that we see is a covetous pride. Those three verses that we just read have references either to you or something you want 12 times. That a lot, that's a lot of references to us or our desires for just a few short verses. If someone can't stop talking about themselves, their issues, how they feel, or what they think about a certain thing, 
we usually don't think that person to be very mature, right? They can't, you can't really have a conversation with somebody who just wants to talk about them. We understand this uh, very simply because we see it all the time. Small children want a toy that another child has. Uh, the kids at VBS were a lot of fun this week, uh, and all of them wanted to tell me how many points they got for certain things. I knew it, but they wanted to tell me anyway. Great, and I'm happy, it's fun. As we get older into preteen and teenage years, we want our driver's license, we want a girlfriend or boyfriend, we want to talk to each other and see if he or she likes me, woo. <laughs> when we get older, we realize that no one really cares about how they look or what we're doing, but our pride starts taking other forms. We want a high paying job or for our idea to be praised at work. We talk to each other about how much weight we've lost, what the kids did in sports, and how many doctor's appointments we have. Why? It's because we want something. Maybe it's attention, maybe it's pity, maybe it's just we want some physical item that we don't have. But it gets worse. James tells us that because of our covetous pride, that we have violent interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Uh, I have statistics on here, but for sake of time, I'm going to skip over them, and because they're really dark and depressing, too. But we know that our world is getting increasingly worse. Yeah. Uh, and violent interpersonal relationships are so common right now. And it's very sad. It's really sad. But James says that uh, our covetous pride is what leads to those things. James says in verse 3 that we ask God or others for the thing that we want, and we don't receive the thing because our desires are wrong desires. He says that in verse 4 that friendship with the world is enmity with God. A lot of times it's easy to just breeze through that word enmity. Uh, but if we are at enmity with God, it means that we are actively opposed or hostile to him. James clarifies by saying, if we're a friend of the world, we are an enemy of God. Again, not a position that I want to be in. Hopefully you would agree. Maybe we say, well, I'm not really a friend of the world. Really? Have we found enjoyment in any type of entertainment this week that has sin in it? Have we snickered under our breath at a dirty joke or comment? Have we listened to music that's not God-honoring? Have we cut someone down so that people would think better of us? The sad reality is that all of us are friends of the world. All of us are enemies of God until we've been saved. That's what makes verse 6 so sweet. It says, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. We have to realize that we're a prideful, covetous enemy of God. That's not really a title that a lot of us want to claim. Uh, but again, like Pastor <coughs> spoke this morning, just understand we're an unprofitable servant. Uh, Truthfully, in our minds, we should just be kind of nothing. We shouldn't really be thought of at all. We just do our job, and we're happy when, I, I don't mean that we're happy when life is over, but we're happy when we get to eternity, and then we're rewarded. We can have the sweet rest then. The second type of pride in this chapter is a condemning pride. He says, speak not evil one of another brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. This verse sounds complicated, especially when you read it at lightning speed. The command we're given is to speak not evil one of another. And James addresses it to brethren again, helping us understand this is specifically to those of us who have been saved. He can't give this command to unsaved people because in our unregenerate dead state, we can't obey. Dead things can't obey. To speak evil is a Greek word that occurs only here in, in 1 Peter, but the word refers to mindless, thoughtless, careless, critical, derogatory speech against others. This speak evil or judging that James talks about is not to be confused with judgment that Paul speaks of in Philippians 1.9. Paul tells us to grow in knowledge and judgment. Judgment there refers to discretion. Uh, it refers to prudent observation, while judgment here is more of the idea of slander or defamation. The use of this word, obviously, then, is not including lovingly giving truth to someone who's in sin. That should be a part of what we do all the time. Galatians tells us that. He tells us if we're speaking evil of one another, we're speaking evil of the law and judging the law. But we can't do that, and he says very clearly why. There is one lawgiver, there is one judge, and it's not us. Isaiah, after he had seen the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, cried out in despair because he realized who he was relative to who God is. Who God is. Job understood this point when he said in Job 40 verse 4, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Paul also got this very well when he wrote in Romans 9.20, 
Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? We don't get to judge. We obey the law, and are rewarded positively or negatively according to what we do. The last type of pride we see in chapter 4 is a conceited or presumptuous pride. This fits really quite perfectly on the back of condemning pride. He says uh, in verses 13 through 17, I might just read a little bit of this. Nope, we'll leave it. It's okay. Go to now, ye that say, buy and sell and get gain, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life that is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away? For that ye ought to say, or instead ye ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boasting. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. The first example of conceited pride is one who ignores and denies the will of God and presumes upon God's graciousness to him in giving him another day. There's a good parallel to this in Luke 12, 16 through 21. The point of this is that we get so stuck on our own ways and our own things that we forget that we're just a minuscule blip on the timeline of eternity. God loves those that are those excuse me, God loves those of us that are truly his children. He loves us dearly. But how do we repay him? We repay him by spending our time, our money, our affections, our attention, all on things that are going to burn up and have no value or consequence. So sure, we can play basketball and make it a lifestyle. We can work ourselves to death for some promotion or raise. We can throw all of our affection towards someone we might not even end up marrying. We can spend what we have on a huge house, boat, or car. But we have to remember that someday all those things are going to be destroyed, and they're going to be worth nothing. I'm not saying those things are evil, but what I am saying is we have got to stop presuming on the grace of God and keep those things in their proper place. They are tools to serve God, and that's how they should be used. Uh, Sarah and I have a two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment, and it has been a great gift from God. Uh, it's inexpensive relative to a lot of places, and that's great. It's a tool to serve God. Uh, I have an aunt and uncle that have a lake house and several boats. That's great. They use it as a tool to serve God. Sarah and I have a lot of relatives as well, and both of our families that are extremely gifted athletically. I'm not bragging on our family. I'm just telling you. There are things that if we wanted to count as gain, we could count as gain. But it doesn't matter because each one of them is using those things to serve God and it's in its proper place. Use what God has given you in his perfect will to serve him, whether it's talents, treasure, or just time. The other way that we display conceited pride is simply by disobeying God's will. It's a simple verse, but the point hits home. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If someone does something they very clearly shouldn't, and instead of loving them by asking questions and pointing them in the right direction, we just let it go because it might be uncomfortable for us, uh, that would be an example of us sinning because we're not doing the thing that we should. If we know someone that we could be a blessing to through our time, our treasure, our talent, and we don't, that's sin because we know we have something good to do and we don't. So the question to answer is how does pride keep us from finding true wisdom? Pride keeps us from finding true wisdom because we want what we want. And instead of letting God impart his wisdom to show us what we need, we, like immature children, just try to take whatever it is we want. We think we should have it now, or maybe we just think we deserve it. There's not true wisdom in the life of that one because we're not sincerely asking for wisdom and desiring wisdom. We just want what we want. Pride keeps us from finding true wisdom because we put ourselves in an elevated place, that of judge and lawgiver. There's great temptation for those of in positions of importance to think that they have what they need to make right decisions because they've gotten to that place. But when we focus on the faults of others route instead of realizing that we're the ones who should be on trial, we're missing the point. Pride keeps us from finding true wisdom because we deny or presume upon God's grace. We think we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We work hard and acquire talent and treasure all on our own, and we won't have time to get serious spiritually after this. That's not a right view. Pride keeps us from finding true wisdom because we go against God's will. We know there's a right thing to do, and we don't do it because our comfort and happiness are more important. We have seen all of the hindrances. No, we haven't seen all of them. We have seen some of the hindrances from finding true wisdom, our tongues and our pride. So how do we actually become wise? This is what we're all here for anyway. I, I should just jump to the end for you. 
happier asleep. I'm just kidding. If we look at James 4, verses 7 through 10, he gives us the instructions. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. We're told first to submit ourselves to God. This is how we become wise. Opposite to pridefully setting ourselves on a pedestal, we understand this term that means to rank beneath. It's a military term. If you want to be even more technical, it's a passive verb. What does that mean? It just means that this is not something that we should have to do. It's something that we just naturally should be. It should be a default. One commentator notes that no one can be saved without submitting himself to God. So if we're having a hard time submitting ourselves to God, it's likely because we're either not saved or it's because we're a Christian that doesn't want to obey God. And that second one of those definitely does not make sense. Who would become a true Christian unless they understood that God's way was better? The second one that he told, tells us on how to become wise is to resist the devil. We've said a lot of times that as we obey one command of scripture, we'll often obey another one. This is exactly the same thing. If we are submitting to God, then we are, by definition, resisting the devil. The word for devil in this passage literally means slanderer or accuser, which again goes completely contrary to what we looked at when we looked at the hindrance that is a condemning pride. The devil will flee when he is resisted. If you need some proof, go read through Matthew chapter 4. The devil tempts Jesus, Christ resists and simultaneously submits to God, and the devil flees. It's a promise. We can take that to the bank. Then the next idea of how we can be wise is to draw nigh to God. Counter to friendship with the world that James warns us is enmity with God, we're commanded to draw nigh to him. Again, if we've been saved, this is something we've already done once. We've been attracted to the love of God. We've been attracted to his yoke that is easy. If we have to draw nigh to God, it means that we have distanced ourselves. Restore the joy that you experienced at salvation. Restore that joy daily. Drawing near to God looks like approaching God with a repentant and humble spirit. At the end of the day, a truly redeemed heart longs for communion with God because he made us and saved us. The next one is a little bit unique, but it is be miserable. This seems to go completely against what James said in chapter 1. He told us that we should count it all joy, right? Last time I checked, joy and misery are not synonyms, and not even in the Greek. But James isn't saying that we should do things to make ourselves miserable. We don't practice asceticism. Rather, what he's explaining is that we should be miserable and in a state of mourning in our own hearts over our own condition. Our desire for sin, our destination that was hell, and our destitution of anything good should, <coughs> should cause us to be grieved in our spirit. The word in the same verse that's used for laughter, he says, turn your laughter, uh, or let your laughter be turned to mourning. Uh, is a word that's used other times in the Bible and refers to laughter or the enjoyment of temporal life that the unsaved enjoy. As their laughter endures for a short time, so likewise will our grieving hearts be well, well worth it when we have eternal joy because of the grace afforded to us here. And I will say this, one side benefit to this command of being miserable uh, is that when we truly understand our state, it allows us to more fully enjoy the simple things of life. Not everything has to be entertaining and crazy and bombastic. You can just enjoy life because you have it. Uh, it's, it's a really nice way to live. Again, I, I'm working on it, and uh, life is so much easier when you just go all in that way. Understand who we are. Uh, the next one he says is to humble ourselves in verse 10. James repeats his exhortation to humble ourselves again. We're told to submit to God. We're exhorted to put off pride that keeps us from finding true wisdom. But he emphasized again that we should humble ourselves. Why does he repeat it? Because this is how legitimate saving faith begins. And it's also because this is really hard to do. No one wants to be the unnoticed servant. I wrote that in here before even pastor preached this morning. No one wants to work hard and receive no recognition or praise. But that is just it. James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Someone is watching. You are not unnoticed. Do the little things right and humble ourselves, uh, and he will lift us up. 
He makes one other command that we skipped over, and I did that on purpose. He says in verse 7b, to cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is one of the only verses in James that is directed to the unsaved. The unsaved knows he hasn't humbled himself truly to become a child of God. And James makes the passionate exhortation to cleanse your hands. Wash off the filth and grime and bondage of this world. Humble yourself. Realize your position before God and come to him. His way is best. His yoke is easy. James continues that the double-minded should purify his heart. He writes that again because the double-minded man can't possibly be a Christian. Jesus himself said very clearly, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and cling to the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. Jesus and James tell us that like oil and water, hypocrisy and true regenerated Christians is not a, is not a possible mix. James gives us a test on how we can know if we're becoming wise in James 3, verses 13 through 18, and we'll close with this. The test is very simple. It's, James tells us that he will, it will be demonstrated, the wisdom will be demonstrated in the life of the wise man. He will prove his wisdom with his life as he meekly focuses on the oftenly human, excuse me, on the often humanly unnoticed stuff of life, just serving the Lord and serving others. Uh, there's a children's song that we probably many of us heard. It's Jesus and Joy, Jesus and Others and You, something like that, right? Um, I'm not trying to ruin the song, but it's Jesus and Others. There's no you. Uh, if you look at the two greatest commandments, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Mark 12, 30, and 31, there is nothing that is said about you. It's love God and love others. Amen. He also says that uh, the man... The wise man will not have envy or strife in his heart in verse 14. He says where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. So the truly wise man can't have envy or strife in his heart. He's content with what he has, and he uses it as a tool to serve the Lord. Then he says lastly in verse 18, that his seed will have peace. The word James uses for fruit refers to the offspring of one. So we understand the truly wise man, as his wisdom is demonstrated in life, and he has a heart of contentment. He will have children that grow up in true righteousness and peace. If you look back at other passages like Matthew 5, 5 or Malachi 2, 15, it's clear that if we focus on making sure we are right with God in our own lives, our line will inherit the earth and the Lord will raise up a godly seed. And that's what he wants. It's hard not to want those things to be a part of each of our lives. With wisdom being so sought after and having a clear path on, for how to find true wisdom, how could we ignore this instruction? Put away the hindrances of our tongues and pride, and we need to seek after true wisdom by opening our Bibles. Listen to pastor and other spiritual leaders that you have instead of comparing what's taught to the wisdom of the world. James tells us that they, the world can't even have true wisdom. They're not saved. Proverbs 2, 3 through 6 is a verse I want to uh, read to us again just as we're closing says, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. You say, Zach, I could have told you that if I seek after true wisdom, I'll grow in the fear of the Lord, and he'll give me wisdom. Good. Then let's do it. Let's put it into practice. We want to have wisdom for finances, workplace dynamics, relationships, whatever else. Submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw an eye to God. Grieve and toil over our current state. Humble ourselves and search for wisdom with all our being. And we'll become wise. It's as simple as that. Let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer.